Welcome to the Recombobulator Lab with Jason Gramnai and Chris Dominic. Hey, Chris. Hey, Jason. Ever heard of a triple threat? Sure. Like a baller who can pass, shoot, and dribble? Or a rugby player who can catch, pass, and kick? Or that annoying guy at the party who can sing, dance, and be vulnerable? Sure, whatever. Anyway, MealPass is the lab's newest sponsor, and they are a serious triple threat. So it can sing and dance and be vulnerable? Boy, no. MealPass elegantly solves the three most serious problems facing America today. Our singing and dancing deficiencies. <laughs> oh, my God. No. No, enough. No singing, no dancing. What I'm talking about is a company that can help feed America's 50 million food insecure citizens, put money into the pockets of the country's 1 million restaurants who are trying to recover from the pandemic and reduce food waste. Whoa, tell me more. Yeah, it's pretty cool, right? MealPass is a technology platform developed here in Australia. It gives restaurants a platform to list any end-of-day meals they'd otherwise throw away. Those in need access a code from a charity food partner. They fire up the app, choose a meal from a restaurant in their area and go and collect it. In doing so, the restaurant Restaurant qualifies for lucrative but hard to access tax deductions, and they reduce their food waste. That really is a triple threat: providing money to restaurants, offering food to the hungry, and reducing GHG by reducing food waste. That's right. In a three-month pilot, mid-pandemic here in Australia, 500 restaurants signed up, including 7-Eleven and Subway. 55,000 meals were served, and 100,000 pounds of landfill-bound food waste was rescued. That's phenomenal. Am I right? Yeah. So when I'm not being a scintillating podcast host with you. I'm helping MealPass launch in the US. We've onboarded our first restaurants and served our first meals to those in need. It's so exciting to see it launch. How can our listeners learn more or help? They can head to MealPass.org to learn more. They can also help us by introducing us to any restaurants in their area that would want to sign up and start earning tax deductions. We're also looking to build our team. So if anyone would like to join us on our mission, we have really cool sales roles on offer. It's a really simple sell. Trust me. That's a way better triple threat than my singing dancing one. I'm not even sure that was ever in question. Question: Mill pass, radical generosity done profitably. J- Jason, what is that? Is it what you, your your endeavor is sponsoring? Is, is there a conflict of interest there? No, well, there's certainly not. But I, I just, I'm just. Uh, in fact, I'm so fascinated. Is this the thing that you mentioned briefly? Yeah, five or six months ago, I mentioned a little bit in conversation and in that time great progress has been made with our project called meal pass oh. so we're very excited meal pass okay you gotta give us the rundown sure. on meal pass i mean i know we just heard a commercial yeah. for meal pass but 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 you know dive in a little bit yeah and so this is a technology d- developed in the middle of the pandemic here in australia and it's a way to help restaurants avoid putting the end of day food in in, in landfill so you think 30% of all the food we eat, we throw away. And 27% of the 30% is actually restaurants, end of day, fresh food. Now, food food banks, food charities can't collect that food. You need refrigeration, you need an army of volunteers, you've got a window of time to do it. But uh, this technology is really cool. So what it does is in a three-month pilot in Australia, the app uh, we launched the app and 500 restaurants, including Subway and 7-Eleven, signed up. And over a three-month period, they, they listed you know, food that was going to be thrown away. So Subway put up five sandwiches at the end of every day and food insecure Australians, families who were hungry, could go to that local Subway and through the app they could see what was available, claim their meal, go to the, the, the Subway at a prearranged time in the evening 
uh, collect that meal and eat with dignity. And so three yeah. months, yeah, wow. three months, 500 restaurants, 55,000 meals served and 100,000 pounds of food waste diverted from landfill. So let me ask, do you need for the people who are the owners of the businesses the the, mm. the restaurants. Do you need them to be socially concerned or is there anything else the in it kicker, for them? This is extraordinary. In the US and the UK and France and the Netherlands, the, uh, the, the tax code, the IRS has this really, really lucrative but very difficult to get tax deduction. So if you're a restaurant and you put out five meals a day, you're in line to get about a $45,000 tax deduction every year. And so this mm. is, we talk about meal pass as radical generosity done profitably. Sometimes when you're generous, it's just out of the goodness of your heart. Now in Australia, we don't have the mm-hmm. tax benefit. So 7-Eleven and Subway down here mm. just did it because they wanted to feed their communities. But the why we're excited about launching in America is of the added benefit of of the tax deduction. So we've sat with the National Restaurant Association in the US. There's a million restaurants in America. There's probably a quarter of a million of them might not make it. But if we can help them make it through this tax deduction, that's exciting. There's 50 million food insecure Americans today looking for a meal every day. And so if we can help them through the restaurants, let's do that. And then the last piece is the food going to landfill. And that's a, a climate change issue. So Meal Pass is this really cool triple threat. What do we do? We're trying to help restaurants get back on their feet. We're trying to reduce food going to landfill and we're trying to feed Americans. And if you look in the media lately in the US, you've got food banks teetering. They have got to ration the food. But here's all this food. And one of the big things for me is it gives those folks looking for food dignity. They can go to actually then go to a Mm -hmm. restaurant and and, and pick up Mm -hmm. a meal. That's a lot better than a food food pantry or begging. So in Oregon, in Portland, the Oregon Food Bank runs 2,000 pantries. They're open from 10 to 12 on a Sunday. So someone who doesn't have a home has to somehow get there, get enough food for the week and somehow find facilities to prepare it. And we can solve that. So we're really excited. As you can tell, it's another it's oh another circular gosh. economy business. It's very much like G-Diapers. We are using the force of business to solve some serious social problems. But unlike so many social businesses, this one puts money in the pocket of restaurants. And we love that. It's yeah. so cool. It's so cool. I, You know, I it's so into what you and mm. I talk about all the time. But in this case, I just have to tip my cap, man. You've done it again. You and your team. Well, done it again that's so exciting i mean i know you're just getting kicked off what's what are the challenges so ahead? we are uh, we're onboarding restaurants we we served our first meals yesterday which was so exciting we're trying to we're trying to, it was really <laughs> oh, wow. cool right and so that's so cool we, yeah you know there are these facebook groups out there that are a conglomeration of food insecure americans we just said hey there's 20 meals to be collected in this restaurant in this suburb of Portland, available between four and five today, if you're in the in the hood, and they did, and so we're just starting. There's bigger partnership opportunities with major supermarkets. It works with supermarkets as well. There's bigger partnership opportunities mm-hmm. with big restaurant chains. You've got some really big restaurant chains in America that own, you know, Buffalo Wild Wings and these big, big chains. And so mm-hmm. sitting with those guys, because they get, the, obviously everyone wants tax deductions. Why wouldn't you? But they get the social impact mm-hmm. story. They want to be the, the restaurant seen as, you know, helping get people back and fed and, and back again, you know. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great mm. story. And if there's no downside to you, you're helping your image and you're probably making your employees and your management team feel yeah. better about what you're doing because that that waste number is not good. Uh, for the, the, what we've learned, like we're working in Portland, we're working, also working in Philadelphia. Now, Philadelphia is the poorest city in America. It is really, really hard mm-hmm. going. And we we you know met with restaurant workers there and restaurant owners. For the restaurant workers to be throwing 
that much food out at the end of every day, it just it kills them, it breaks their hearts. Yeah. So um, look, we're really excited. I was brought into the business by the the, the founder who's who, who built the whole technology, and he brought me in because I've got some American experience. But it is so it makes you feel so good, you know. If we can just feed one more American, yeah, we're very excited. It's incredible. Well, how the heck do we transition <laughs> yeah. from? Food yeah. waste to supermodels that have extremely powerful philanthropic mm. organizations that save mothers. I, I think you just did. I, oh, okay. <laughs> it's just, it's, that's a sentence yeah. you just don't think you'd ever put it's together. It's under the right? umbrella of doing good, right? It sure is. I, I'm Well, I'm looking forward to switching over to our conversation with Christy Turlington Burns and her organization, Every Mother's Counts. We got together with her. She was visiting her mom's place in the Bay Area where she grew up just like Aww. me and Aww. yeah and she was on the east bay i was on the oh. peninsula but you were kind of neighbors didn't you have family that went to school no was that true no. no so my my wife laura went to the same high school as her and i think was closer to the age right. of her sister that's really cool yeah because walnut oh, creek yeah. danville yep. that yep. area that's that's where they were can't wait let's go let's do it let's do it all right here we go so this week on the lab we welcome christy tellington burns maternal health advocate and mum. some may recognize her name as she did it have a little barely unsuccessful career modeling whatever but clearly maternal health advocacy is her life's calling welcome ctb Ooh, great to be so great, great to see you. Now, we did have an idea of where we want to take the conversation, but there's one quick question. I opened the paper this morning and saw that a friend of yours had just had a child at the age of five zero. Yes. I wanted to share with the three of us, I wanted to quickly go around, we're all of a certain age, and I thought to myself, at 51, how would I feel about having a baby now, and what would my sons, Finn and Harper, think about having a younger child? Thoughts, comments, questions. I would be surprised. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, I feel like the beauty of our world today is that anything is possible. Right. Mm -hmm. In some respects, I feel like, you know, with teenagers, I think, oh my gosh, to go back now would yeah. be really hard. But in other respects, I think being a more mature person mm. kind of has its advantages too, right? I don't know. There's yeah. a certain mm -hmm. getting to a place in your life where there's not a whole lot more to explore in the sense of, you know, you won't have those like itchy feelings mm. of I, I need to go here. I need to do that. But I do know this individual very well. And I'm imagining the two of them are going to be very much world travelers. I, I think they'll yeah. probably mm. get their act together and then they will be globetrotters, continue to be globetrotters so for her. Bad. And That's then a new being will be globetrotting with her, which is, I, <laughs> I think, so sweet. And I'm really thrilled for her. Oh, that's so cool. Nice. Well, I just, some context, Christy and my wife Kim met at a Fortune magazine event 10 or so years ago when we were in our early 20s. Um, <laughs> our company and Kim and I have supported the work of Christy's nonprofit, Every Mother Counts, by running marathons around the world. And that's how we, we know Christy. And it's been so lovely to know you over these years. And our kids is nearly the same age and we have a hostage exchange agreement where we will be swapping our children for each other. Oh, how did you guys come up with that? <laughs> well, one of our, our kids have the same name. How hard is that? I mean, I know, just, I know. Kind of I, I have a special fondness for anyone that has the name Finn, a special name, and I've I've not met anyone that doesn't have the sort of magical spirit of my Finn, and so I know yours does. Whereas my daughter has a less um, uncommon name, I would say. I love her name as well. She's called Grace, and she's named after my paternal grandmother. But that's a name that I feel like mm. I've met so, so many, and none of them are the same. Hmm. <laughs> 
So no, that's so cool. now we know each other. Always like the name. Yeah, Finn. Yeah. People spell Finn differently, though, right? Some people go F-I, some people go F-Y. F-I. That's an F-I. F-I. And Jason's Mine's an F-Y, an F-Y but yeah. mine would like to lobby you, Christy, to have his name changed to F-I because he's so sick of <laughs> correcting people. He's like, what were you thinking? Yeah, yeah, that makes sense. He kept it simple, and I think that was why he's thinking with our Finn because, yeah, he's not he's not one to like to write, like at least, you know, by hand. Yep. And so anything that can condense what he needs to get out there <laughs> is better. So starting with Finn Burns is quite... Oh, that's you know. cool. Yeah. And if I dropped my, my name, Graham, he'd be Finn Nye. Ooh. Ooh. Oh, with Ooh, two that Ys. Is, that's a tight name. Oh, my. Oh, that's kind of cool. That's kind of cool. Yeah. No, so, hey, before we get into, I mean, we've got some important things yeah. to talk about today. And I just feel like we need to clear the air and get something out there right now, which is, Jason, where the hell are you? I'm in a bunker. I'm in a small rural town south of Sydney called Bega. It's the home of Bega Cheese and it owns the biggest food company in Australia. And importantly for you, Christy, because I know this is your favorite food group, they just bought Vegemite back from America. So Vegemite is our food. Our food. I mean, I'm six foot five basically because of Vegemite. Thanks, mum and dad. I mean, we are built on Vegemite okay. and Kraft in America had owned the company. Anyway, they've acquired it and I'm down here doing some teaching at a university. Six in the morning. Uh-huh. The heat is not working. It's not as nice as your room over there, Christy. Oh, God. But yes, here I am. Oh, well, first of all, uh, I didn't know that Vegemite was owned by an American company all this time. It was outrageous. It still didn't help, did it? It didn't get any more Americans turned no. on to Vegemite. <laughs> no. Christy, do you do you actually like Vegemite? No, I don't. <laughs> I have tried. I feel, I kept feeling like it was an acquired taste, and I would try. I would try. Yeah. But I, yeah, it, I think it has, it's like a it's like an infant toddler sort of acquisition. Yeah. It's not a. I think, yeah. I, yeah, you might not even be able to acquire that. Uh, no, my- but I do. I do like savory. Like I'm more mm-hmm. a savory person than a sweet person. So I actually, it has all of the things that I would like. Mm-hmm. Um, I think it just. Ha- I don't know. I don't know what it is. Yeah, yeah. I think I'm O for about 200 on Americans that like Vegemite or Marmite. <laughs> Any odds? <laughs> yeah, no, none of the well, odds. We've, we've covered lots of things. We've we've kind of um, becoming a parent older in life. We've covered the freezing room that I'm in. I've, we've covered, let's get into it because we're here to talk about maternal health. And this statistic that blows my mind is the fact that more than 800 women die every day from complications related to pregnancy or childbirth. And that equates to one woman every two minutes. So, and all, almost all of these deaths are prevented by ensuring women have access to quality, respectful and equitable maternity care and too few women have access they need. And that has shocked me. So I wanted to start, Christy, with how... How did you come into this work? Yeah, every time I hear the stats, even though I'm quite familiar with them, they shock me every time. So it's not the kind of information that you get comfortable with ever. I became aware of these statistics after becoming a mom. You know, it was after the birth of my daughter, Grace, who's now 17 and a half, when I experienced a postpartum hemorrhage after an otherwise very pleasant, healthy, otherwise, you know, not very dramatic birth, pregnancy and birth. And the that complication, honestly, there was no way for me to know that that would happen. There was no kind of test or um, scan or insight that would have allowed me to prepare for it. Having experienced it, having lost a fair amount of blood and then gone through those feelings of confusion and pain and just, you know, just like not feeling like the um, incredibly empowered person I had felt when I first delivered her. 
it was just, it really shocked and surprised me and, and led me to want to first understand why that happened, but more importantly, to prevent more mothers from being like me and discovering this when it was too late. You know, from luckily for me, my daughter and I had great care and we had a lot of birth options available to us. And that included a midwife and a doula and a backing physician and a um, basically a team that worked really well together to ensure our safety. But so many other women and girls around the world don't have access to that care or options to um, that type of care. And so for me, the initial thoughts were, wow, I can't believe I didn't know this. And wouldn't it benefit us all if we came into this experience being better prepared, having plans in place for the uneventful? The still, while it's more common than we would imagine, it's still fairly rare. And I think that's part of the problem with regard to how people address an emergency once it does happen. Um, but yeah, I, I just felt like we more of us need to know more about this experience and the possibilities and to advocate for those who don't have access to, you know, better services and care so that more of us could have the the more empowering, the more um, heroic experience that should come along with delivering a child. Wow. That's amazing. I'm I just curious, every mother counts. Where's the focus of your work geographically? It's global. You know, we have partners across nine countries today, the United States, Guatemala, Tanzania, Haiti, India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Indonesia. Wow. Um, and, uh, and I only get confused because for a long time it was six. And then because um, over the years we've had an emergency fund, which has repeatedly gone to the same parts of the world. So eventually those grantee partners became pretty much full-time partners rather than just emergency-based partners. And so that number only recently became nine from six. But, uh, you know, it, wow. it, it's this is a global tragedy. I mean, pretty much all over the world, this is an issue. There are marginalized populations that are impacted by the lack of access to quality care all over the world. However, there are some countries that are doing a much better job than others. And um, I think because we're still a small entity and can't be in every country and I don't know that that's welcome or required necessarily. It was really important as I founded this organization um, to have at least geographic coverage um, in most of the continent. So, you know, Sub-Saharan Africa having the highest rates of maternal mortality in the world, Southeast Asia having the second highest rates, um, and then so on and so on. And so, and then of course, because I, I live in um, America and I had my children in New York, um, it was important to also shine a light on the United States, which surprise, surprise to most audiences um, is actually, uh, we're having a maternal health crisis right here at home. And so um, as, other countries around the world, such as Bangladesh and Tanzania and Guatemala, their numbers have been getting better um, and they've been reducing the number of deaths at birth. The United States is actually on the rise. And so I'm happy that we have an opportunity to be able to share that and to be able to work directly with our health system to try to, to make changes. Oh, yeah. Now that, you know, th let me just pop one more thing in here because getting ready for this, I went through the website a little bit because I wanted to watch a couple of these movies and I found that they were just 
compelling as all hell. I, I was really interested in them. And I, I'll tell you, you know, Jason and I both have to be critical of websites all the time because that's such an important part of your business these days. And we're always looking at our own and going, hmm, could that be better? I just thought it was, there was a lot there. And if you want to just get a little bit, you can get a little bit. If you really want to dig in deep, you can. I mean, I've, I got to that slide where you've got the UN principles you're following. I mean, it's, it's just very, very impressive. But then I was reminded while I was watching the movie that you actually have kind of a background in this, right? Could you tell us a little bit more about that? I didn't go to school to become a filmmaker, but I did make a documentary film. So after I had had the birth experience, I and I started to learn more about this issue globally. And I'd always had a dream to, to make a documentary film. I just didn't know when that would be or what the topic would be that I would focus on. And so really it was this issue that I think sort of stood out as the opportunity to be able to use documentary film to bring more people into the conversation. And so I went back to school to get a master's in public health in, when my son was about one and a half, I would say two. And at that same time, I started making a documentary film um, called No Woman, No Cry. And the film is really what led to the organization. I guess I skipped that part when we mm. first started talking. But yeah, that important step was that the organization was really a campaign to go along with the film. And then over time, having, you know, had so many conversations with various stakeholders around the world where I would show the film, it became evident that more was needed actually. And that every mother counts could be more than a campaign. It could be, mm. you know, a, a place, mm. a, a resource, as you mentioned, the, the website being kind of the cornerstone of that piece of the work, a place where more people could understand the problem, but also with a lens, with a positive lens, with a, this is what's mm. possible, right? I think more of us feel that we can mm. become a part of a conversation or part of a, a movement when we feel that there's a possibility to make change. And this happens to be one of those issues. J Jason alluded to this already. Of the 300 or so thousand um, deaths that are estimated globally, almost 90% of those deaths are preventable. Mm. That's a lot. Mm. That's a lot. Yeah, That's amazing. I think that's the proposition, really. And when people learn that piece of it, I, we get a lot of interest, a lot of... Yeah. Um, a lot of engagement. And, and so really, you know, over the last 11 years or so, the, the goal has been to try to create more opportunities for people to have that kind of tangible experience, whether it's running races or joining in partnership around, you know, product or around events and um, various educational um, opportunities like races or screenings or films. You know, there's just so much, there's so many different ways to come at this and so many things that are required in order to really change um, the system. Mm. System, it's interesting you've used running and marathoning as a way of raising awareness and getting people involved viscerally <laughs> um and when i moved to the <laughs> states i started running for my mental health because i was working long hours with a startup and working with my wife and thinking oh you know we're raising kids and working together i might go running and clear my mind a bit and then i met you and i thought oh this is great i can run for a cause and then to learn that it's it takes i'm probably going to look at this right but 26 miles or 42 kilometers is about the distance a, a mum would need to travel to get to mm. assistance in uh, in developing economies which is why we run those distances so um it's it was so good to attach running to a, a great cause christy has done all six of abbott's major marathons which is a series of marathons which is incredible kudos to you so they are wow. the london marathon boston berlin tokyo chicago and new york so as a bit of a running geek christy which was your favorite or do you not want to think of any of them <laughs> Gosh, I, I would i guess 
All of them are, it's actually interesting you bring this up today because it was announced this morning that, you know, the race is going to go on in New York this year mm. and it's going to be about half the capacity that it typically is. I think New York is probably the biggest marathon in the world in terms mm. of the amount of people participate. Mm -hmm. So New York is quite special. And New York, the New York City Marathon is the same age as I am. Um, but they have not celebrated 30, their 32. Wow. Yeah, 32. 32. <laughs> they have not celebrated their 50th because A, the 2012 or 2013 oh, it was, was cancelled because of the Hurricane Sandy. That's the one I was running for you. Yeah. Right. And then <laughs> and this then year, obviously, or last year, obviously it was yeah. cancelled. So I have subtly committed to running my ninth marathon. <laughs> Marathon this November 7th in New York City. Nice. I, you know, it's been a little while because I was injured the year before yeah. last. And so I kind of pushed all my races out, not knowing that we would have a global pandemic to deal with. But that's all to say that New York is one of my favorites because it was my first and right. I run it twice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it's the city that I live in. And so mm -hmm. I think there's something special about running in a city that you know so well. And yet yeah. when you run a, a marathon, you see parts of a city that you will yeah. never see otherwise. So it's magical. The crowds are magical. It's a really tough race, no matter yep. what the weather is. It's just, mm -hmm. it's pretty brutal. There are a lot of subtle, but not so subtle when you're on your feet for a few hours yeah. hills like the bridges are hills yeah. very like it's subtle but when you, but first avenue is just a constant uphill yes. um and just even the last last 200 yards there's like a bit of a hill again it's <laughs> tough so i would say that's one of my favorites but my favorite is probably the one that i did that was my fastest race because i just surprised myself we ended up doing a partnership with apple watch when it was launching and um with that you know i was sort of like an amateur runner that oh my dream is to is to do an under four hour marathon um and i thought that was a fairly ambitious but i think it's a pretty general dream like, like a lot of people like aim for that four i was love to be mm -hmm. under four but anywhere close to four is great my first one i think was like 420 and i thought okay now i'm gonna do this again and i feel like i know how i would train differently now i know what this is and i think i can do better but then we kept, mm -hmm. we skipped for sandy and then the next one i i trained and had an injury so i didn't beat that so by the time apple came around and said do you want to do this 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 thing with us i was like oh gosh i don't know if i can do it i don't know if i can do it it's my fourth fifth marathon maybe my fourth it was in london the weather was kind of perfect and i don't know i sometimes think maybe it's because there were camera crews stationed through the entire course that i somehow and i had an apple watch i ran my fast marathon which was 346 47. nice good on you oh my god i mean come on that's come huge on. that's awesome and i did because i mean it took up so much of my time for those few months preparing for it that i probably was my best trained ever mm. like mm. and and because of that it had a really i had a really good um result and then i did chicago about a year later where i was just behind it i almost beat it that was also good nice that's a nice flat race but they're yeah. all amazing it's like a child you know, each one is different. It's like a birth, which is why we have the running analogy, right? That's each true. child, each race is like its own thing so and you don't true. know what to expect exactly. and you're gonna, whether you're prepared or not it's going to tell you what it's going to be and your body is going to tell you what it's going to what's capable of in that day in that moment i ran boston as well because i qualified for boston after london so cool. and 
I mean, for me, I never thought I would qualify for a, a race of that magnitude. Yeah. I don't know. That They're all good. And I'm, I'm actually talking about it. Yeah. I'm getting excited to do it again. So thank so, you. Guys. Uh, you have fully motivated me. So I got, I picked up an injury. I, I run with Roma, who is a friend I met through Christy and Roma ended up moving to Australia and I picked up an injury. So I haven't run. I've put on about eight COVID kilograms that seem to be liking me and I can't seem to shed them. But um, <laughs> you've now inspired me because I'm a little bit off trying to, I'm about 15, uh, I'm 10 I'm nine, 10 minutes off qualifying for Boston that's my own dream like I've been trying for like 15 years so you've you've really inspired me to do that again I love the idea and Kim is going to laugh at your idea of subtle commitment like when I <laughs> sign up for a, a marathon and Kim's like oh okay here we go I know Another six I know you're like, yeah. <laughs> well you know what's also good though I realized uh Jason is that with Boston the qualifying times as you get older they drop lower can I can I just say my qualifying time was but uh, before I was fifty, okay, I needed to do it in three twenty five, and then they oh. changed the qualifying times, and they got so five minutes faster. Oh. <laughs> so I've got to do it in three twenty. Oh. So I think I think one of my smarter sons is like, Dad, just wait just wait till you're sixty, and let the time meet you. <laughs> <laughs> You know, there's some brains there. I love the idea that each marathon's like a child. It is so true. You've got to accept it. You can't fight it. You know, you know, I had a race in yeah. Arizona or somewhere and it was windy as and it was anyway, I, I love that. And you're so true about I ran New York once and just every time I go back, it's like there's parts of that city. I just go, oh, God, that hill. Yeah. Like, you know? <laughs> I incredible. made the mistake of, yeah. before my first time doing it. I made the mistake of watching on the website for the New York City Marathon. There's like a like a, a oh. speed it up. Version the of flyby, the yeah, 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 yeah. And I, I watching that, it was like, oh my gosh, it's it's that's really something. But I would say that when you then run the course, there are so many, so many neighborhoods, and yeah. every neighborhood is such a, a completely different world. More than the other places, I would say that I've mm. run, because um, I run the Tokyo Marathon too. And of course, I don't know Tokyo as well as I know New York. But you know, I didn't notice those nuances in the mm. way that I think with New York, you really do when you go through the Hasidic neighborhoods in Brooklyn, and then you go through you know our you know Chinatown, or you know like you just mm. see these little these little pockets of of culture and diversity and i love that that's why i live in new york i love it no it's true i ran my first one in 2000 as a test event for the olympics and so they've left the blue line on the road for the last 21 years so when you drive around oh. sydney you see the blue line oh, i remember that that's amazing <laughs> They should always do that. They should. It's do that a really time. clever idea. It's so they do fun. Change the courses though. Sometimes, like I know when I did Tokyo, they had just changed it from the year before, and so I guess there's some cities that have yeah. gone through different variances or whatever. That's but true. I love the idea of that That's and having fun. the year attached to whatever that route is. It's pretty. Yeah. Cool. Is there any opportunity to lure you down to Australia for a gallop? I would love to come to <laughs> Australia. I um I've been to Australia about three times. And never for as long as I think is required. I mean, first of all, just the journey itself requires time to settle and acclimate. But I, I know my family would love to come. I, I, I have a lot of friends down there. I've got you guys 
Roma, mm. but I have so many friends in Sydney that I oh, adore. And so, you know, now that we're coming out of the other side of this um, pandemic, I feel like there are, it's like the bucket list goes back into place and maybe yeah. it's a little bit rejiggered, but um, it's definitely on there. Yeah. And the kids, the kids have such a fun time. We can do our fin exchange. It'd be seamless. <laughs> the fin exchange. I think my, I think my fin's going to be really tall like yours. Um, oh, right. Yeah. So mm. he'll fit in his bed. He can wear his yeah. shoes. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> that's right um you know we, i was just realizing we we skipped over something here which is i, I was going to make a joke about this but it didn't exactly uh it, it's not something that's really joking which is looking at the research we, we talked a little bit about the third world here but the u.s is ranked 55th in the world in for maternal outcomes it was 41st 10 years ago what's what's going on <laughs> that's kind of yeah. frightening um it's it's you know for i would say about two decades, two and a half decades, we have continued in the United States to to fall farther behind. In fact, they say that today a woman ha- it, it's a a woman has more risk in becoming a mother today than her mother a generation before her. And oh, wow. so, you know, this is one of those issues. I know when I first learned about uh, you know the global figures, I I thought, wow, you know, I, I had a great a great grandparent that died during childbirth, but these are things that felt like grandmother's mm. generation. Mm. Many of us have heard these stories in our families yeah. or seen them in films, right? Learn that, sure. and now, of course, in my work with Every Mother Counts, I've met so many mm. widows and family mm. members who have lost loved ones, and so it is so real and so so front in my mind every day. You know that this is something that's happening. It's happening every mm. day. What is happening? is that we have a broken health system, a very complicated health system, perhaps more complicated than any other in the world. Um, Our insurance Mm -hmm. is problematic. Um, It's very expensive to have a baby in America. Um, We we sort of over-medicalize the birth experience, the physiological experience of birth to the point that actually over-medicalization is one of the causes of maternal mortality. We have a very high C-section rate, which is not safe for many women and, Mm. and families. The WHO also has a recommendation, um, which is that there should be not more than 15% of C-section births and not less than 5%. I know many experts who say there, you really couldn't put an exact number on what it should be, but it just says that here in the United States, there are many, many states that have beyond 30%. Mm. So that's, that's problematic. And that can range from which institution you actually deliver at. And a lot of people don't have choice in that matter, right? They go where their their doctor is affiliated or they go where their insurance is accepted. And so it really is, you get what you get. And um, sadly, it's not consistent across all of our institutions. Mm. And then, you know, mm. you may have read or heard about our, um, our race wars <laughs> that we have in this country. Yeah, yeah. But, I mean, it's not totally unique to our country, but mm. our country has its, its very mm. own history. Uh, we're in the midst of of a very painful, painful conversation or, you know, I don't know, confrontation about the degree with which race is playing a part in the way that people of color are treated at every level of society, but certainly in our, in mm-hmm. our medical institutions. And, you know, time and time again, we see that the women who are most likely to die from pregnancy or childbirth related complications are black women. They're American. 
They are, there's not even a correlation to education or socioeconomic. Honestly, a educated black woman has a higher chance of dying than an uneducated white woman. And that simply, you know, it doesn't even beg the question because the, the question has been answered. There is a lot of evidence, a lot of testimony to say that black people are treated differently in our in our institutions. Yeah. We'll pause it right there and pick up where we left off in the next episode. Thank you for joining us at the Recombobulator Lab with Chris Dominic and Jason Graham Nye. Catch you next time.